Neuroscientists say confidence is a series of mental, physical, and emotional habits that can be learned. Just how important is confidence? What makes some people overconfident while others are realistic about their abilities? And why are both outlooks important to succeed in life? Ian Robertson is a respected professor emeritus of psychology at Trinity College Dublin and the founding director of the Trinity College Institute of Neuroscience. He's also co-director of Global Brain Health Institute. As both a clinical psychologist and neuroscientist, he's well known for his work in neuropsychology. Ian has written several books for the general reader, such as Mind Sculpture, The Mind's Eye, Stay Sharp, The Winter Effect, and The Stress Test. His latest book, How Confidence Works, was published in May 2021. Professor Ian Robertson, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you, Mia. Delighted to be here. And we're so interested in what you've written about how confidence works, the new science of self-belief. As you say, it has many benefits. I believe you selected a passage that you're going to read. I'm going to just start with the beginning of the book. Suppose we were to discover something that could make us wealthier, healthier, longer living, smarter, kinder, happier, more motivated and more innovative. Ridiculous, you might say. But in fact, we already have. What is this elixir? Confidence. And it is to human endeavor what food is to the body. Without either, we would wither and die. If you have it, it can empower you to reach heights you never thought possible. But if you don't, it can have devastating effect on your prospects, despite your objective achievements. When tennis star Venus Williams was asked age 14 on ABC News how confident she was about beating her opponent in a tough upcoming match, she responded by saying, I'm very confident. The reporter replied, a little surprised, you say it so easily, why? Because I believe it. Interviewed nearly 25 years later in 2018 by the New York Times, she said, I feel that I owe my own success to my belief in myself, and I found that confidence can be learned and developed. In fact, my own self-confidence is something I work on every day, just like going to the gym or training on the court. This book will probe the science and neuroscience behind the idea that confidence can be learned, or whether it is something you inherit. Optimism, hope, and self-esteem are all concepts that are easily confused with confidence, but as I will show, they differ in one fundamental way. Confidence empowers action. You can be an optimist who is hopeful that things will work out okay in the end, without ever believing that you can play a part in that outcome or indeed have any realistic grounds for that optimism. And you can have high self-esteem and feel good about yourself without feeling confident that you can achieve a particular goal. Yes, and in that passage, you really point out that certain individuals may be naturally, you know, born with confidence or it's been promoted and encouraged from the time they were young. And also a little bit about the gender divide, because, you know, as women, I think that really is is something we actually almost have to ask permission to be confident. And I think that one of the gists of your book is that women are more realistic and men can be overconfident. That's right, Mia. And before I researched and this book, I hadn't realized quite what an advantage men have in, in the world because of this fact that on average, they're more overconfident and women are more realistic about their own abilities, for example. And there, there are many factors at play in this. It's not all genetic or inherited. Yes, there are testosterone differences and other hormonal differences between men and women that lead to slight differences in a propensity to be dominant. But the wonderful and ghastly truth about confidence is that a small difference in confidence between two people will magnify itself exponentially over time 
because of the positive effects that confidence has on your success in the world and in your success at persuading other people and in your success in building status. So small differences in the tendency to be confident, say between two girls or two boys or a boy and a girl early in life, don't inevitably lead to later big differences in confidence. But the right learning doesn't happen and the right experiences don't happen. It certainly can result in a yawning gap in confidence, not just between men and women, but between people of higher class and people of lower social class, between people of a minority group and people of a majority group, people who have certain physical appearances, height, good looks, etc., and people who have less good. All of these things feed into confidence, but none of them determine it. And that's the good news about the book. Just as Venus Williams said, confidence is a series of mental, physical, and emotional habits that can be learned. And once you learn them, you can gain the compound interest benefits of confidence. And not to simplify, but if one were to only have so many traits, and if one were to say, oh, I'd rather have an excess of confidence or an excess of intelligence or, you know, giftedness and talent. Because sometimes you talk to actors and if they really did the math, they think, oh God, the chance of becoming a successful Hollywood actor is very low. But the confidence brought them over. If you were to choose, you know, if you had a limited... I would go for confidence all the time because intelligence is useless unless it's harnessed and applied and constrained by judgment, but also if it's fueled by the ability to persist through difficulties, to respond well to failure. We know from research, in terms of pure academic achievement, intelligence is only one factor. Persistence is another, and persistence comes from confidence. And related to confidence is feeling that you can do things in spite of your emotional reactions, in spite of feeling anxious, in spite of having self-doubts, that you have this ability to set a goal and to believe that you can achieve that goal. And that's all learnable. Indeed. And it comes down to people's skills and being able to say if it's team building, if you don't have all those traits, uh, but you have the confidence that people then follow you, you can gather their traits and do something truly collective. And that's the positive end of it. On the other hand, we've seen politicians harness that confidence in different ways. And in your book, you talk about there's a positive correlation between narcissism and political participation. Why do you think narcissism is so rampant in politics? I'm thinking of Boris Johnson or Donald Trump, there's no doubt that certain narcissism exudes, you know, confidence. Yes, you're right. Narcissistic people have very high self-evaluation, which means they are able to do things in spite of maybe cutting corners, in spite of not having mastered their brief and thinking of Boris Johnson there, in spite of having lots of legal cases against them, the kind of things that would make the rest of us anxious. The narcissist is so engrossed in their own positive self-perception that they are not phased by these things. But the other thing is about narcissism, particularly in the media, it can create charisma. And charisma gives you status, and status makes you persuasive. And persuasion gets you money and power and all sorts of other things, and these reinforce the charisma. So there's a kind of rather sinister vicious cycle, virtuous to the narcissist and vicious to the rest of us that can really put people who are not fit for power in power because of these superficial supreme overconfidence that is a part of narcissism. Yes, I remember that famous uh, line when uh, Donald Trump was speaking to his followers and he said, I could go out and shoot somebody and uh, I wouldn't lose any voters. And yes. that's dreadful, but that shows the, the power, the, the lure. I guess we all would want uh, a kind of a momentum in our lives. And sometimes it blinds us. But I don't want to focus just on that. This book really has a lot of practical insights for the average person. How can we 
build our confidence and self-esteem and also keep it realistic. Very much so. And a few examples of just what these things are. One of them is, is what we pay attention to, because actually what we pay attention to determines the contents of our consciousness and therefore our emotions. So the example I give is the first time I presented my PhD research after I was moving into science from clinical work. And there was a conference and in the front row was a very distinguished professor from Oxford who was looking scowling and shaking her head when I spoke. And I just felt absolutely devastated. I felt my career was finished before it started. Later, I discovered there was other things going on. But my attention homed in on that woman's face. I didn't pay any attention anywhere else. Had I chosen to pay attention instead to the majority of people who were looking moderately interested, or at least neutral, that would not have fed my anxiety and would not have degraded my performance as happened because I was too anxious. So what you pay attention to, both in the outside world, but also in the inside world, determines your confidence. And that's related to a second A. The first one's attention. Second is anxiety. Anxiety is the greatest corrosive of confidence, and confidence is the greatest antidote to anxiety. And if, if you don't feel in control of your emotions, for instance, anxiety, then you won't feel in control of your own future behavior because you can't anticipate how you're going to feel. And it's possible you may be derailed. So you have to be confident about your own internal state as well. And there are many very practical ways of doing that. But critically is to take a positive attitude to anxiety, to see it actually as a form of energy, very similar psychophysiologically to the emotional energy involved in anger and excitement. And you can harness that as a form of energy. And one way of doing that is to say, actually, if I do this thing in spite of feeling anxious, that actually is a huge source of confidence. It's doing something in spite of adversity. So that's just a couple of examples of how you can train your mental state to become more confident, exactly the way Venus Williams talked about it. Indeed, athletes, artists, you know, particularly within the performing arts, they know how to hone that and how the anxiety can provide a kind of tension that's useful, this idea of the competition, but not to be overwhelmed by it. And you discussed uh, attention. What we pay attention to is so important. And so how does social media affect our attention and our ability to concentrate? How does it affect people's confidence? Well, that's a great question. You know, the algorithms we all know about feed it discern our internal needs. These days, there's a huge tendency for people to perceive threat in the world, in some ways, realistically, to climate emergency and other things. But if your social media feeds are very likely to home in on that and give you information and images to feed into that need, and that's like me giving my talk and seeing only the one professor's face and not being able to look away from it. That's like a social media feed. And what that can do is just make us more and more anxious. If we get more and more anxious and we only perceive threat in the world, that will make us feel helpless and out of control. And when we feel helpless and out of control and anxious, that's a huge degrader of confidence. There's a fantastic program called The Female Lead that's aimed at teenage girls to get them to log on to positive women role models and start changing the feed they're getting from the social media to look for possibility and challenge and opportunity rather than threat or feeling inadequate in comparison to some supermodel celebrity influencer constantly feeling lacking, which is the kind of low self-esteem that can arise from constantly comparing yourself to other people who are very difficult to beat in any dimension that you're important to you. And whose image might indeed be manipulated by computer exactly. Photoshop. And exactly. 
It's so true. Uh, we are the stories we tell ourselves. And so if we surround ourselves with these positive stories, positive yet attainable stories, um, we can become the best version of ourselves. I really believe that. I'm glad that you mentioned the climate crisis. Currently, there are several young people, groups of young environmentalists taking 32 European countries to court over climate policies. Some have won like in Germany and recently in Montana. And they argue that the lack of adequate action is a breach of their human rights and their well-being. So they have this, I think, justified anxiety because they're going to have to live with the consequences of climate change, you know, much longer. And they resent the heat waves and they're finally they can't sleep and they can't study because the real urgency is something that the rest of the world is not paying enough attention to. So, you know, where do you balance that between what's enough yeah. anxiety? We don't want to just blinker ourselves. You know, we have to address the situation. That's a great question, Mia, and I'm so glad you asked it, because I mentioned earlier the symptoms of anxiety, the beating heart, the tense stomach, the dry mouth, the clenched muscles, are the same symptoms of anger and of excitement. And they only crystallize into one particular emotion by the label we put on it and the context. So it's very easy to shift the jujitsu anxiety into excitement or excitement into anxiety or anxiety into anger, or anger into anxiety. It's very easy for these emotions to be changed depending on what we say to ourselves. These young people who are rightly feeling very anxious about the future of the world, the worst thing for them is to just feel this constant sense of threat and hopelessness. The best thing they can do is to change that fear into anger. However, anger is a real trap. It's a dangerous emotion, and it's a powerful emotion. And the, the thing about anger is its purpose in life is as a negotiating tool. Anger is designed to get other people to do what we want without having to go to the full fist fight. That's what, you know, dogs growl at each other. They seldom actually end up tearing lumps out of each other. The person with the biggest growl wins. So the, the wonderful healing effect of anger. Now, there's two, two Maya Angelou said, anger burns clean. And anger does burn clean. It gives you a sense of purpose and mission and going forward. Whereas Mark Twain said, it does more damage to the vessel that holds it. And that's true also. It depends what you do with it. So the critical thing about anger is not to feel diffusely angry about how the world is being run or, you know, just anger in general. You need to be angry at a specific person or group and you have to have a specific request of that person or group. So there has to be that sense of action, of something you want to happen, a goal, and you know who it is you're asking to achieve that goal. And that's where collective action, like the legal actions you mentioned in Germany and Montana, are such healing potent, powerful ways of harnessing this energy, which could be anxiety, it could be excitement, it could be anger. You're harnessing it into a, a, a fuel, and that fuel empowers confidence. And the successes you achieve along the way will, will boost that confidence. And of course, confidence is most powerful when it's collective. So the individual ego is less vulnerable when you have a collective action and a collective confidence. Yes, you mentioned uh, dogs and growling. And I think about, you know, in the wild, I think about predators. I'm just fascinated by the confidence of animals, the communication. And there's an adrenaline element, right? And you can watch yeah. the cheetahs and the savannah, and they don't seem to be doing anything, you know? And then they see their prey, and they can go up to 130 kilometers an hour in a second, you know? And so it's about conserving that energy and summoning it when you need it. And so what is your practice? advice or things that we can do to bring out the confidence when we need it. And then perhaps I guess there's a moment where you might want to dampen your confidence when you might need to think more logically or without emotion. The thing about confidence is that some people are plagued by 
procrastination and being constantly overwhelmed by things. And, you know, so there's some good old kind of time management methods where you just, you know, you're mindful about what you're doing, you're intentional. You may not particularly enjoy your job, but you're going to set the next 50 minutes, you're going to actually write that ghastly report you have to write that you've been putting off for a while, or you're going to phone and have that difficult conversation. So it's about taking control over critical part of your brain which gives us reward experiences the ventral striatum the, the dopamine fueled reward network and if we structure our time so that we know what it is we're going to do we're intentional is kind of modern word but this comes from buddhism essentially but if we know that what i'm doing is i'm making a cup of tea or i'm tidying that drawer or I'm going to walk down that road and enjoy the walk. If we know what it is we're doing, we're have setting a goal for ourselves. And so when we complete that goal, no matter how mundane, there's a little sense of achievement. Oh, yeah, that's what I set out to do. And I did it. It may not have been that enjoyable, but actually there's a sense of satisfaction. I finally cleaned that cupboard. So goal setting is, I'd say, one of the most powerful ways of activating the reward network. And if you activate the reward network, you will lift confidence. Even mundane successes make future successes more likely. They work according to compound interest, just like confidence. Indeed. So it seems very much confidence is a story that we tell ourselves. And you're talking about mundane successes. And I think about, you know, the other end of it. You know, a lot of people are fascinated in the pursuit of fame. And then you hear on the other side of it, when they get to the other side of that mountain, they sometimes lose the sense of self. You know, everyone believes I can walk on water. Maybe I can. And you, you hear these stories. I, I like to even listen to that actor, Jim Carrey, when so many successful films and making people laugh but then that wasn't me anymore he would say in an interview you know that was Jim Carrey but that wasn't the real me and as you said when you achieve your goal how do we come down and back to our our true self I guess yeah great question confidence requires us to to play a role sometimes there's an element of faking it till you make it we all feel a bit like an imposter you know as we go on we say god do I really deserve this and That's a healthy balance between benefiting from the success, but also having a degree of self-awareness and the empathy that goes with self-awareness. So the risk is if, if, if your confidence works too well, as it usually does, and you end up hugely successful or rich or famous or hugely achieving in some domain, the risk is that it goes to your head. And what does go to your head means? It really essentially means a kind of narcissism where you lose sight of the fact that actually 90% of your success is due to factors over which you cannot take credit for. Your upbringing, your trainers, the privilege you had, luck's a huge part of it. I mean, for every madly rich entrepreneur, there's a thousand equally talented, equally hardworking entrepreneurs who just didn't happen to have the luck. It was just the wrong time. So most great success is huge percentage luck. And if you're really successful, you should be grateful and humble about that, not fall into the trap of the successful person of starting to feel godlike. The gods are lonely. The gods are accountable to no one. And it's a ghastly place to be in because it's like you've become addicted to a drug and there's never enough of that drug. You need never enough approbation, never enough acclaim, never enough more and more. So huge success in any domain is hugely difficult to handle. Few people do manage to handle it. And one of the great ways of doing that is is, is grounding yourself in your values and saying, oh, well, who am I? What do I stand for? And the great thing about values, if you articulate them and remind yourself of what your values are and why you hold them, 
values are immortal in a way that you're not. And so preserving of my self-esteem, trying to live forever kind of narrative that goes on with these most many of these rich people. You don't need all that. There's a sense in which you're secure in your values and you can take this great success easily and lightly and with the, the requisite amount of humorous and sceptical self-awareness. I was fortunate enough to meet Tom Hanks uh, recently and he was exactly like that. He just wanted to have a normal conversation. None of all this nonsense that goes on with great famous people, you know. So so not everyone succumbs to it, but it's a hard road to, to follow because the temptations to start to feel godlike are so great. And what have you learned from the different spiritual traditions? I know you're a Celt, so you're Scottish. I'm part Irish, so I live there a number yeah, of years. Yeah. And, and I know that the, the Celts have a great sense of humour about themselves. So that's great for puncturing when the ego gets too big. Yeah. And they're also very confident, so it's a strange mix but of your reflections on the different uh, spiritual traditions you know what have you yeah. done you, you ask great questions Mia thank you actually both Ireland and Scotland have this kind of greater tendency to laugh at yourself and be self-deprecating actually I don't think they're that confident I think of course there are some who are but on average they, they don't have that salesmanship because confidence is a kind of salesmanship of the brand of your ego there's a bit of that you know although Often it's like that. It doesn't have to be like that. It can be the quietly confident, I can do this without all the kind of narcissistic stuff that goes with it. But nevertheless, you know, your self-esteem, if you're very successful, self-esteem will tend to, to increase as well. Actually, the gap between men and women in confidence is much greater in Scotland and Ireland than it is in America or Canada. Similarly, for working versus middle class, it's much greater. I think North America is better at fostering confidence. Whether that's got to do with a spiritual tradition, I'm not sure. But to answer your question about spiritual tradition, Buddhist and Eastern religions have been way ahead of the Western religions of the book in probing consciousness and how we respond to our own mental life. And the notion of decentering, which is very big in psychology now, the idea that you can look at yourself a bit in the third person, talk to yourself, and rather than immerse yourself in the emotion that feels that's me, my anxiety or my anger, rather kind of have a kind of wry watcher look decentered on on yourself. It's an incredibly powerful way of of defusing some of these particularly negative emotions, and that comes directly from the Buddhist tradition. That notion of decentering, that notion of mindful watching, not getting too realizing you are not your thoughts, you are not your emotions. These are fundamental ideas from the Buddhist tradition. And, you know, we've learned a huge amount. Science is now trying to work out brain correlates of this big time. And then the whole notion of compassion, the idea that you can actually summon up feelings of compassion, not just for other people, but for yourself. And that these will produce significant brain changes with positive emotions that diffuse some of the negative views of yourself that are so common these days. Yes, I, I have to remember that some of those traditions, and it's going back so many centuries, uh, they really knew a lot. They didn't have all the technology, but they had technology for understanding our minds. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. We still don't even grasp it. Even on a neuropsychological level, as I understand different uh, frequencies or you know these different ways of meditation to change the brain chemistry. Yeah, big time. And the immune system. Oh, uh, yeah, our and, health, our mental and physical health. I yeah, want to go into yeah. what you do, of course, at the brain health project and the global brain health institute so yeah. what are your reflections on the future of ai and governance and how we can respect the human lives and the human jobs as well as harnessing the benefits 
of the new technologies. It's something I've been thinking about a lot, you know, because our self-esteem as a species has been hugely based on our capacity for reason. Now there's machines that can reason better than us and can process information better than us. And in the last 50 years, people who prided themselves on manual skills, the blue-collar workers, that source of their self-esteem was taken away by robotics and automation. And they end up having to drive taxis if they're lucky. But even there, that's going to be automated now. And the same thing's going to happen to many white-collar jobs. There's going to be a real challenge, and a tiny number of people are going to become immensely rich because control these technologies. And then skills that were previously seen as valuable are going to be, there'll still be a need for smart people, but their smartness is going to be hugely devalued. Suddenly, what, how do we, particularly college-educated middle-class people, how, what's going to be the basis of their self-esteem? And to me, I've come up with three things about this. One is, what do we have that chat GPT does? Well, first of all, we have bodies. And the second thing we have is each other. We have the capacity for immense positive things coming out, the spreading of ideas and the spread if we can work together. So we have that. And the third thing we have is we're part of nature, which ChatGPT is not part of nature. We are biological entities who are actually connected to the, the natural world. And, and the fourth thing we have is values. We have values. We have a biologically programmed sense of what is good and what is not good. Machines have to be programmed to have that. So we, with this four-legged horse of values of nature, of each other, and of our embodiment, I think there's a possibility of us getting a whole sense of greater well-being than in a highly individualistic culture where we essentially live or die by money or, or material well-being. So I think there's a potential for people to be much happier. However, people's needs need to be satisfied for housing, for food, for transport. And that's why the economic system has to change. We cannot have more and more people becoming more and more fabulously rich at the expense of everyone else. That's a doomsday scenario. So I think there's a real possibility that AI can be our friend, can free us up to ride that four-legged horse. But we have to have the, the confidence to work together to create that. And of course, there are many groups of people around the world trying to create that kind of thing, including the young people you were talking about in Montana and Germany. I'm Nicole Aquino, and I'm currently pursuing a double major in English and Journalism. I wanted to share how much I appreciated Professor Robertson's and Mia Funk's discussion about AI technology and its implications for future careers. As a humanities major, I'm quite aware of the ongoing debate about the relevance of humanities, especially with declining enrollment in the U.S. What really struck me was Professor Robertson's emphasis on confidence and how it anchors us in a world increasingly dominated by technology. He talked about the significance of our physical bodies and our ability to collaborate effectively, stressing the connection between ourselves and nature as well as our core values. The debate about the importance of humanities majors extends far beyond just the English department. The skills we develop in these fields are incredibly versatile and have practical applications across a wide range of professions. These four principles he mentions really resonate with a sense of spiritual consciousness, which can be incredibly helpful for anyone especially those in fields that might be losing their originality due to technological advances. For example, humanities. They empower us to maintain confidence in our skills and find meaning and purpose in a constantly evolving job market. Now, let's get back to the interview. 
for many years, some neuroscientists, some psychologists were the kind of secret weapon behind some of these uh, big technology companies, whether it's Google or the different attention economy companies making these technologies and platforms addictive. So yeah. they give this dopamine rush. And I wish there was a kind of oath of the technologist, you know, first do no harm, this kind of thing that there would have to be a threshold of don't put things out there that could harm, at the very least, young people whose neuroplasticity is so vulnerable. And I heard that there was a, there was an interview with Steve Jobs way back when the first iPad came out. And the journalist just asked a very simple question. It was like, oh, like your kids must be delighted, you know, <laughs> do they have this, that they get the first models? And he says, oh, no, I don't let my children yeah. have them. Yeah. And, and that was the iPad. That was even before the latest expressions of social media. So, yeah. So what are your reflections on what all of these new technologies are doing to the neuroplasticity of young people, how it's changed our ability to think and concentrate? And, you know, those involved in the health professions, how can they be involved in making the technologies and technology companies accountable so there's some kind of governance set up yeah and again fantastic question i've heard this not just with steve jobs i've heard a lot of big tech people that they, they, they don't walk the walk for their own children but you know the thing is as you say we have an attention economy the information and the raw materials of a trillion dollar economy and just today uh, the company tiktok was fined 350 million approximately euro by the Irish regulator for processes involved in protecting younger users on their platform. And the EU has been in the forefront of trying to rein in big tech, but so far with relatively little success. Jonathan Haidt, the, the great psychologist of moral behaviour, he's been documenting this quite awful rise in psychological distress of various kinds among teenagers. And he and others have identified it as happening. The inflection point was around 2012, which was really about the time that Facebook and other social media platforms really took off, you know. So we have got a real crisis for our young people. Just the use of eight-year-old children with fully pop computers in their pockets who are able to access porn and all sorts of ghastly stuff. I mean, the effects in the brain, or say of young of boys or young men being exposed to the worst kinds of porn, that is just a ghastly, ghastly scenario, as bad as drugs. So I, I think there are big risks, and I think we just have to get the regulation in here very, very seriously. But of course, in the United States, there's a big anti-regulatory kind of movement, and the EU seems to be the, one of the leading on the world trying to, to do this, but it's extremely difficult and I don't have any easy answers unfortunately except that I think that more people like you who understand the effects if if you can be more involved in the planning process where if we're just the users would it would be great yeah. if we could be more involved and understand yeah. what was yeah. being designed for our consumption and so you know we have an environmental podcast you know, one planet podcast and so seven million people died from covid most of the world shut down for over a year and on top of this annually around eight million people are dying every year from pollution and no one has to wear a mask or stay at home like we did with COVID. And over 40 billion tons of CO2 are released into the atmosphere annually. And apart from killing people, what do you think that CO2 is doing to our ability to think critically? 
Well, I couldn't speculate on what CO2 is doing to our brains, but certainly we know that pollution has terribly effect, particularly in children's brains and in, in areas where there is high levels of pollution. And then, of course, if lung function is impaired, that will imp- impair brain function. So air pollution and water pollution are, are just two huge challenges for brain health. And of course, if the health of the brain is compromised, then everything is compromised, all other aspects of health. And then down the road, as we live longer and longer, we're expecting dementia rates to triple, which are already really high. And looking after dementia costs more than cancer, stroke and heart disease combined. And this is going to hit low and middle income countries even more than rich countries. So we we have this real crisis of late life dementia. All these things that compromise the brain earlier in life, including pollution, including poor diet, including high levels of continual stress. All of these things will back up and exaggerate this awful impending threat to brain health, to late life dementia. Yeah, I know that's a loaded, a complex question. I believe I'm optimistic and confident. At least I have a hope. But when one gets the statistics, sometimes one has to reevaluate yeah, yeah. one's outlook for the near term. Yeah, yeah. On the upside, I had the opportunity to see, and you've seen, the Celtic Tiger. This huge transformation. Talk about confidence. Ireland went from relatively poor country. We've just now passed a hundred years of Irish independence, and yeah. you have seen and witnessed, and I have seen the uh, confidence so. And I'm so glad to see that. I think it's one of the wealthiest countries in the world and in Europe as well. So just what are your reflections on that? Thank you for asking that. And and, uh, what Ireland went went through since independence, it went through decades, generations of real hardship, you know, and it was really in the first years of of the country, you know, it was huge immigration, huge lack of industry and a huge sense of collective pessimism, if you like, made young people leave. As people left, I think largely joining the EU was the, the big factor. People left, but they came back. We know that people who come back after having had exposure to different cultures, different practices, they come back and they revitalize a, a, an economy and, and a collective psychology. And you then developed this very open global economy, which, however, because it was so open and because it maybe became a bit overconfident during the Kelty Tiger, had the biggest drop in, in global GNP of any industrialized country at the Great Recession of 2007-8-9. And it was just a huge mass unemployment, pay cuts, just really. And what struck me about that, because I was living through that, I just had such admiration for the grit and the resilience, how people got through that. And that was because there was a cultural history of very tough times and they came through. And so they had learned to deal with tough times. And so we came through that and now regained and rebuilt. And that sense of getting through, just putting one step in front of yourself in spite of adversity, in spite of not knowing exactly where you're going. The the Afghanistani put in 12th century, 1200 said, the road only appears with the first step. Well, Ireland kept taking the first step out of that recession. And because they kept keeping these steps in spite of misery, in spite of adversity, in spite of anxiety, that's a huge source of confidence. And so there is a collective confidence in the country because of that feeling of having got through this together. And, you know, Ireland is before tax is a very unequal society, but after tax is one of the much less unequal societies. And so inequality makes people feel as if they're not in the same boat. If you can make that less unequal, 
it's easier to feel, particularly in a small country, to feel they're in this together. And of course, it's not perfect. And there's many people who do feel alienated, but there's much more of a sense of common purpose. That's my perception as someone who came from the outside. Indeed, that sense of you know, keep on moving forward, as the fellow says, don't look back. And yeah. yet you're buoyed along by this must be a genetic yeah. Yeah. memory of resilience. And yeah. so as you think about the future, as you know, what you tell your children or your students, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I'd love young people to feel connected to nature and feel a delight in being part of nature. I'd love young people to feel masters of their own minds to realize that actually they have the potential to control their anxiety, to control their anger, to choose how they feel. It's not easy, but you can learn to do that. And again, many of the Eastern practices, mindfulness and things have been very important. So if you think of the four horsemen for dealing with AI, I'd love love young people to feel the joy of being conscious, embodied creatures in the natural world with values and connected to other joyful, embodied creatures. I mean, if you can just get people really accessing these four things and then creating societies that share the incredible bounty that comes from AI and the, the economic advances going to come from that, now that's, of course, a, a real Shangri-La I'm envisaging. But why not dream about that? Indeed, we can master our own minds. And you've given it through your books and your teaching. I mean, in closing, you should say a little bit about what you do at the Global Health Institute. And in, in Dallas, you're also the co-leader of the, the Brain Health Project. Yes, I'd be delighted. So the, the Global Brain Health Institute is a joint program between uh, Trinity College Dublin and University of California, San Francisco, that was funded by Chuck Feeney, the Irish-American philanthropist, who gave away all his money. He gave away about $8 billion. And he now lives in a small apartment in San Francisco. And he actually was the exemplar that kicked off the Giving While Living pledge that people like Gates and Buffett have signed up to. So he's a hero. And his last funding was to create these fellowship programs where around the world we train people focused on equity. So it's health equity in South Africa, racial equity in the USA, social and economic equity in Australia and New Zealand. And then for us, it's global brain health. So because brain health is a source of inequity and, and a way of reducing inequity. So we train fellows from all over the world, from 50 different countries, particularly low and middle income countries, to start to understand how we can prevent poor brain health and the ultimate manifestation dementia by developing policies to try and improve people's brain health. And, and that we have, therefore, we have scientists, neuroscientists, doctors, architects, lawyers, musicians, artists creating this movement. The Brain Health Project in Dallas, inspired and led by fantastic scientist Dr. Sandy Chapman at the Center for Brain Health. There, the, the aim is to make deliver to people a way of assessing their own brain health online in a way that you can get your physical fitness assessed but with a completely different orientation, rather than going to be cognitively assessed and the stamp in your forehead of you've got such and such a capacity, this assessment is with a view to you improving it. So it's a, a way of treating your brain the way we treat our bodies. We go to the gym and we're told, oh, you need to build your fitness and these muscles and build your aerobic fitness. We're trying to develop the same orientation towards people assessing their brain health and then giving a whole set of online resources to helping them do that. And our aim is to get 200,000 people from all over the world signed up to this. And then we're going to be studying them yearly over 10 years. And about 10% of them are going to do brain imaging to see if we can look for the changes in the brain 
brain that correspond to their improvements in brain health. Indeed, it's so fascinating. I mean, we explore other planets, but our own minds, that's this whole inner universe. And, yeah. and I was just so happy to learn today that at the University of Chicago, they have discovered a cure for multiple sclerosis, I believe. So okay. it's just fun for all these breakthroughs. So we're looking forward to the, the many breakthroughs and insights that your institutes and projects uh, bring about. So thank you, Professor Ian Robertson, for helping us understand how confidence works and how we can harness it and success without losing our values and sense of humility. By helping us understand our minds and psychology, we can create positive futures. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you, Mia. That was a great interview. I really enjoyed it. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producers on this episode were Sophie Garnier and Nicole Aquino. The Creative Process is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Katie Foster. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. Thank you.